After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu Marcus. I'm David Silver. Hi. And here he is, David Silver. I don't know what I'd do without you. I really don't. Well, that's a that's a sad reflection on your state of life. No, thank you very much. Um, just to segue quickly into people listening, please use our audible.com and our amazon.com portals on our, webs- on our website. And if you have ad blockers, get rid of them just for that and use them because we actually get some shekels from that and it helps us a lot with everything. Okay, that's the end of the whole promotional. Really? Thing. Wow, you're really getting it down now. I like it. I like it. I hate these commercials. Um, but I wanted to say something, uh, and it's about our little... You and I have a kind of a dialectic going around... Facebook, because, you know, listen, folks, we are trying to, you know, do stuff to build an audience, but neither of us are uh, what you would call people who want to impose themselves on anybody in any way. But David does these wonderful things, both on Twitter and Facebook, and finds great, great images and little stories and so on, not necessarily having anything to do with what we've talked about in that particular podcast, but they're very pithy, wise, and impressionistic. And uh, that's why I love Dave. And so so he's doing this, and he, <laughs> he keeps doing it, and, and he's not seeing his Facebook uh, likes go up in, a, in an appreciable manner. And I'm saying, it's going to happen. I mean, we've only been doing this for 10 months. Sounds like a, a long time, but it's not really in the world of podcasting. No, but I mean, I, Raga, you're right. I mean, I see my friend who's not doing a podcast, who's not doing anything. He's just a person, lovely person. I love her. I see her. She's not promoting anything, whatever. She puts a picture of something on there, like maybe her dog's tail, and there's 61 likes. I'm putting on, you know, we're putting on wisdom from the, you know, the Tao and, and, and with great funny pictures. And we're getting like nine likes. Okay, so I want David to feel way better about what he's doing. So everybody who's out there who's listening to this, the thousands of people, uh, please, would you like this on your Facebook page? Not only that, share it. And when you share it, say, hey, we're going to help them build an audience. So when Dave looks at this stuff, he won't get dejected. Okay? I, I just So I had to say that. I'm going to switch right away. 
Yeah, get out of there quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found a, a Lakota uh, saying, a Lakota prayer. Okay, Lakota Sioux. Yeah. And um, I just love it so much that I have to share it. Okay. And Wakan Tonka, great mystery. How about that for a start? That's what they call God. Yeah, great it's mystery. It's the greatest name, right? Grandfa- it means grandfather, I think, Wakan Tonka. Uh-huh, but it in sounds Lakota, like... In Lakota, I think it does, but I could uh-huh. be wrong. Anybody who knows, let us know about that. But it's but, like Maharaji, uh-huh. you know, Raghu. It's one of those words that means two, maybe two things. A million, you know, everybody's grandfather, but actually the father of the universe. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. All right. Great mystery. Teach me how to trust my heart, my mind, my intuition, my inner knowing, the senses of my body, the blessings of my spirit. Teach me to trust these things so that I may enter my sacred space and love beyond my fear. I mean... Love uh, beyond my fear. Uh, I'm writing that down. And thus walk in balance with the passing of each glorious sun. That's a Lakota prayer. Uh, we'll uh, put that up. Maybe will you? You'll put that up on the site yeah, somewhere. I'll you know. just I'll just listen to this recording. And put it up. Yeah. Um, um, so you could, you, you could text it to me or something. Yeah. I mean, that is just so amazing. I have to say that I worked with... And you've just been putting so, up these great pictures of... Yeah, of, the Curtis pictures. Yeah. yeah, the Curtis pictures. Yeah, and I was... A, you know, Edward S. Curtis's work is amazing. He took thousands of pictures of Native Americans uh, at the turn of the century. And it so happened that a friend of mine who's no longer with us, uh, called Charlie Witham on Martha's Vineyard, happened to acquire a huge number of them, like hundreds mm. of them. Wow. And in the late 60s and early 70s, I used to treasure my time to go to Charlie's house to look at these Curtis photographs. Mm. They're astonishing because it was like looking into the original world before the world of the Native American world, before it was you know, de- decimated. Yeah. Although when he was working, it was already impinged upon you know, drastically. Yeah. But it was the end when you could see village life, and, but you could also see medicine men and chiefs and just ordinary people too. So I want to put them up because there's a lot of them available in uh, no, Lakota, they're they're amazing. Yeah, they're fantastic. If if uh, any of you out there have not seen these, they're some of the most beautiful photographs that I have seen in a very very long time. I'm from and you know I, I think God I can remember seeing these even in back in the seventies, right? I mean we were we were aware of them. I think back then, um, David. Yeah. Okay, so I have a couple of thoughts here, or a couple of different blogs that I saw. Uh, articles, whatever, and I'm going to give you the choice. So I'm going to give you, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what each one is, and then you can decide, okay? Yeah. The first one's called, I'll have what she's thinking. You like that? Um, Do you have any idea what that uh, could it possibly mean? Like from, from Sally and, Har- you know, that movie with Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan? Yeah. When they're having... Di- when Harry met lunch. Sally. And she has an orgasm, and everybody goes, I have what she's eating. You just got the absolute, I mean, this, you should win a prize for this. This is unbelievable. You got the actual essence of what this article is about. I swear to God. Really? 
Researchers confirm the spontaneous orgasm. Science has looked into some strange things over the centuries. Reports of gargantuan sea monsters, purported images of Jesus, sightings of alien spaceships, and so on. So on. When I first heard of spontaneous orgasm while researching a book on yoga, including its libidinous cousin Tantra, I figured it was more allegory than reality, and in any event would pr- prove beyond the reach of even the boldest investigators. <laughs> I read the first paragraph here and I was hooked, right? And this is like this uh, Master and Johnson's thing that's on HBO now. Which, yeah, I saw one of them. Yeah, saw- yeah, it was pretty good. It was, yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, so it, it, so you got it. They proved that women do not need to be physically touched whatsoever to have a uh, an orgasm, and they can have a spontaneous orgasm just with being fed imagery immediately. And you got that right away, so we don't have to talk about that, okay? Well, I mean, I, I just love this. It, it, Do you want me to is, read some more from this? It's, it's a really... pretty wonderful thing because, I mean, there are high lamas even who would say that the only time that ordinary people, as they call us sometimes, uh, can have anything like a samadhi experience or a truly blissful space is during orgasm. Right. But we're so hooked on the sexual aspect that we sort of don't blast into the cosmos as much as we should because the orgasm is a, a, a slight representation of bliss. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, and I mean slight according to the lamas at any rate. Yeah. Still not. You know, the bliss. No, that, the glimpse, just like a psychedelic uh, thing is a glimpse of, uh, yeah. of, of what reality is, yeah. Um, so that was a good one. Yeah, do you like, I mean, I can even read, um, what is this? This is great. But the, the research is also illuminating a plausible neurological basis. You just said this again. I mean, you have got this. <laughs> Wait, that for the, a, Plausible neurological basis for the long intermingling of sexuality and mysticism, and in particular, the teachings of Tantra, which arose in medieval India as a path to spiritual ecstasy. Perhaps more important, it illustrates how little we really know of human physiology. Scientists have long debated the purpose of the female orgasm, which plays no direct role in procreation. The emerging reality of spontaneous orgasms seem to do nothing but deepen the mystery. This explains the expression on a lot of women's faces as I'm walking up and down Fifth Avenue <laughs> Manhattan. They're not smiling at me at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is wonderful news. Isn't it? Newsflash, everybody out there. Newsflash. Really? What's wrong with men, though? Why, ma- why can't well, men? Men have- are so one-dimensional and completely. True. <laughs> so true. It's just that there's not any complexity whatsoever, and no chance at all. Yeah, that's why tantra in, in this age for men, maybe women, possible. You know that they can have more. They have way more discipline. But men, tantra in this age, forget about it. It's not happening. Okay, next. I have nothing more to say to add to that. You know what? I'm gonna now. I want to play. What you is a, next? I want to play you a song. Oh, okay. All right. 
and uh, and this uh, singer is female, and she represents related to this article, okay, in some far distant way. Oh. Okay, hang in there. Yeah. Um, so she, to me, is the uh, has the most is is the most uh, shall I say how to describe it whole being as a woman where she's got male and female equally in her so she's got a tremendous uh, shakti a lot of incredible energy and at the same time is so sexy and female and I mean she is a just to me uh, uh, and her singing and and everything she's my favorite of all time okay or at least one of the yeah it's got to be one of the few top singers uh so all right you are you ready i'm ready okay hopefully this is going to work okay Person, 
Chrissy Hind, who is a very complex person. And uh, unfortunately, our technology has failed us, and Mr. Silver seems not to have heard one note. Is that true? This is lamentably true. However, I am, I am like you, I'm such a fan of Pretenders and Chrissy Hind that I know the song, and, you know, I'd like to have heard it because I'd love to hear her. She's amazing, isn't she? I mean... Yeah. yeah, complex person. She wasn't that easy to work with. Although I didn't directly work with her, I know someone who did. Don't ask. But uh, she was, you know, extremely complex person. Firm, <laughs> yeah. Like firm about what she wanted. Yeah, this friend of ours. Sorry, we, can't, we shouldn't say anything else because we. No, no, I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna say this friend of ours yes. happens to also have worked with Ricky Lee Jones, and yes. so you have to say that he worked with the two greatest in my mind, a top five female singers as well as the most shall we say complex both of them so uh anyhow that's my whole thing today around uh, spontaneous orgasm and uh one would say, i was at a concert where one could easily be ha- have had a spontaneous orgasm with chrissy hein so uh david it is your turn to spiel on here so what do you about, got about anything well, you told me you had some uh, some you were oh, concerned about some of our listeners. Yeah, we've been getting uh you know, we get emails and comments uh on the website and also on Facebook. And um there are things that people repeatedly seem to want to talk to us about or for us to, you know, go on about. And one of them is is a very obvious one is just how do I I find a path? I don't know which way to go. I don't know which spiritual path or whatever way of 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 devotion or you know i how do you do that and and then another one's less frequent we've had it at least four times is um where are the gurus how can i find a guru how, how do i go to a guru and i want to address that one so a little bit okay uh and then the, the other question is how much should i renounce in my life i'm 24 and i haven't been around that much and i, I should i just start you know forget about it right now and not be a material material world person and just get into some serious yoga, some meditation, maybe some travel and study. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then another one, this is the third one, is right occupation or right livelihood. Uh, is there a right one? Yes, there is. We, you know, I know there is the reader. The writer says, but I'm not quite sure about my job uh, and what I'm doing. And then the fourth one is a question of where does social, which we've talked, Raga and I have talked a lot about, which is social activism. So the first one I wanted to get into was the most common question people have been asking Rago and myself, uh, which, you know, makes sense, is, you know, how do I choose a path? I don't really know about much of this stuff. I go to yoga or something, or I, I, I read autobiography of a yoga, something. Something started me. But how do I commit myself to something when I don't know which one to go to, and I'm not sure what differentiates one from another? And um, this is a, a really good question. Because it's easy to be very, you know, complacent when you've already traveled down the journey a little bit and realized um, what works for you, you know. But at the beginning, it is kind of confusing because there's so many different, particularly now, uh, manifestations of various paths that are available uh, just online alone. So um, my, I have a pretty mystical response to that, Raghav. I always have had, which is that it will find you. It did me. Because I was resistant to all of it, you know, in my early 20s. I wasn't really interested in anything like that. I was interested in, you know, 
I don't know, music and, and life and, and, you know, movies and whatever. So I was very resistant, but it all came flowing to me in an inescapable way from people I really trusted and, and loved and respected and saw that they'd gone down a certain path and I wanted to explore that because I, I really trusted their, not only their, um, you know, niceness as a person, but their um, judgment, their um, discriminatory faculties. So it came to me with, and the reason I'm bringing it up is that I wasn't looking for it. I was interested in it, but you know, this is the time of the Beatles and everything. And when the Beatles got into it, I got into it and I got into TM and all that. And, but I, what really happened to me was almost like passive, that just stuff started coming and I'd repeatedly find myself finding out about one thing rather than another. So my answer to it is, yeah, explore the different paths. We got a letter, um, Raghu from somebody who said that he didn't want to go to India because he'd done some inquiries and found that various so-called gurus were asking for lots of money. And I wrote back to him in this heated way and said, if they're asking for lots of money, don't go near them unless you've met them and there's a reason and there's some kind of uh, part of their leela that suggests that they take some money from you. But if it's being advertised as being, you know, $7,500 to go to, the, and so I said, I would be very careful about that. Uh, but there's no no reason why you shouldn't look through magazines like Tricycle and uh, Elephant Journal, all those great things online that tell you where things are happening, where kirtans are happening. And just go with your instinct because you can't. Ramdas said recently, I know this because we're working on a film and it's in the film. He said, I don't listen to anybody. I just listen to my heart. If it's good enough for Ramdas, it's good enough for me, I'll tell you. Um, you know, he knew as soon as he met Maharaji, Ninkarili Baba, that that was overwhelmingly, blindingly the truth for the rest of his life. Um, and he's affected me, of course, because I trusted his judgment 100%. So sometimes it works like that, sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's not an easy question and it's not, it's not an easy answer. Mm -hmm. But my answer, and then I'd love you to speak about this, Raghu, is my answer is more go with the flow hippie stuff, you know, that it's all come to me kind of. Go with the flow hippie stuff. Yes. That's how you would characterize your advice, I see. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep that quote on you. <laughs> no, no, but let me, let me, I'll change it then. To, to immerse yourself in the paradigm of uncertain mystery and delight in the knowledge to come. Wow. That just came flowing off. Here he, he's just my guru. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, okay, so uh, my response to that, I, I obviously uh, completely are one with you on the fact that uh, it catches you. You don't catch it, whatever it is. Uh, but the one thing you can catch uh, and uh, is what Krishnadas calls, we, we're quoting our, our, some of our best friends here, uh, love is a disease. You get it and you give it to everybody else. And so, like when I was a kid, I, I, you know, not to rehash some of our earlier stuff from podcasts talking about how we got turned down, turned on, but I fell in love with uh, when, um, when Coltrane played that 
you know, my favorite things on The Soprano, I fell in love in that moment. I was just, I was just so absolutely at one and just merging with that completely in, in terms of senses and uh, intellect and consciousness, all of it. I mean, it was just so vastly compelling. And then, um, and of course, what difference may that be from the first time you fall in love with, uh, the, with, with uh, a woman or a man? What difference would that be? I mean, that compelling, absolutely surrendering everything into that one thing. And, you know, and for me, a, a lot of it was around music, I, I have to say. I mean, I obviously had lots of fun back then, um, and that did happen to me. But I do remember being very one-pointed about whatever it was. I was going to get it. I wanted to, uh, that Coltrane, I got down there. I had heard this thing on a record, and I wanted to, and I was below age to go into a club at the time. I think I was 16 or something, maybe 17. And, uh, you know, and then Hendrix, you know, uh, just it's just popping into my head that that was another thing. I just absolutely did not stop listening to that record. Are you experienced? Um, all day long, when I, when we first got that record, I was so compelled, and I made it my business. And I was living in Montreal; it wasn't that available to me. To, you know, these concerts weren't really coming through Montreal, so you know, I went down to the states and uh, and and attended many of those shows. So similarly, when Ramdas came along, I was, I fell in love with that love. Period. I absolutely was uh, nothing else. I could not think of anything else. I didn't want to talk about anything else. So, so there was some way below the surface intuitive thing that, uh, that drove me to want to just completely absorb into whatever I was getting. And so, you know, a lot of people back then, they heard Ramdas. And they went, uh, you know, they, they heard about his guru and the, they heard about, you know, they got the transmission of that unconditional love that he got. Because that's what happened to us. When he said that story about how suddenly, you know, Maharaji told him that he was out and about and, uh, in, in, the, in, the eve, in the night and his thinking of his mother. And when he said she died of spleen and that's when he fell apart. Everyone who heard that had that same experience. He he transmitted that unconditional, uh, unconditional knowing and unconditional love, because uh, Ramdas talked about the next thing. He was sitting in front of him. Well, if he knows that, he knows everything else. And holy shit, do I have a bunch of crap that I don't want anybody to know about? And then he looked up, and there was that unconditional love. So um, that was that was the beginning of of a whole important crucial part of not just his life but mil kind of millions of other people really who if he's a catalyst even if they've never met him and i mean i i do want to say that you know you don't actually have to have epiphanies and revelations everybody's karma is different i mean some people don't have that kind of thing but they're just as immersed in in the um the need for loving awareness and um a path as people who are. So it doesn't really matter. The thing is, where you get it from is sometimes it's 
proactive and you look for this awakening. Yeah. It's funny, you know, you mentioned music. Sharon Salzberg said that one time she was giving a, a class in Cleveland and she had some time off, so she went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. And she went to the Bob Dylan uh, um, or the Bruce Springsteen um, exhibit, actually. And there was a letter there uh, that Bruce had written about it was when he heard Bob Dylan that it was as if a big boot kicked him. And that was the rest of his life. Right. It was that important to him. Dylan changed Springsteen's life so heavily. And Sharon was commenting on that, that that's pretty much analogous to the way it happens sometimes. She said, you know, you can practice and practice and practice and you don't think anything's going to happen. And then some situation will come about which will prove in, me in great measure to you that there's, there's a different consciousness descending on you and, you know, that you're not so wrapped up in... In, in anxieties and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, um, uh, just let me, to, to just sort of uh, come full circle to what I was saying about being completely compelled to just be absorbed into these things that I loved back then. And then, of course, the same thing with Ramdas, what he was saying, his experiences, what he was transmitting. I wanted that. Many people heard that back then, and many people were turned on. Not all of them followed through and went to India. Now, that's a case, and so there is a place where once you hear this thing, well, you, you know, I mean, you can totally chase it down and just to the expense of anything else in your life. I mean, at that point, I didn't care about anything. I wanted to find that thing. I was not caring about my career at the time or anything. In fact, I gave up a really, uh, you know, I was a program director of a radio station when I was, that was, when I was 23, 4 years old. So I gave it all up, and so there was a. But the next thing to think about in this thing around, how do I find a guru? How you know? And and I'm you're saying they find you, and I'm saying when you hear about something that's so compelling, you go after it. You absolutely go after. Oh, it. you go after it. Yeah, I mean, but and what happens then? That's a matter of karma. I mean, whether you get to India to physically meet someone, or whether you get to read just read a story about that being and and instantly get turned on and connected you don't need to go anywhere so there's no going anywhere not going anywhere but there is a way in which there's intense karma involved to just hear about these people you know i mean just just for us to talk about this on on a podcast like this where other people find out about it is uh, you know on one level we're having fun here and we hope we're entertaining and saying a few, uh, you know, wise things that connect with somebody, and not that is not coming from us. Ultimately, there, there is a karma of of us doing this, and a karma of somebody listening to it, and a karma of going forward and grabbing it in any way. So that's really so essentially what you're, you know. Of course, you get searched out. You don't search anything out. But on the other hand, when you do see something, search it out. And that's the, you know, that's the, uh, you know, this is a sort of a dichotomy, but it's as real. I mean, because it's, uh, both things are true. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you could, you know, if you can just sort of, you know, not get too rush, rushing about it, but let it come. And then when it does come, as Raghu said, chase it. And you'll know then I'm chasing this because it, it had an unusual effect on me. You have no choice. You, you just have, no have to get after it, you know. And it isn't always a guru. Sometimes it's whatever. I mean, it's it's what hits you, you know. But by guru, we mean specifically, I suppose, 
you know, uh, a being who you just, you know, you can just look at and it helps. Well, you know, or a teacher in a certain tradition that's not a guru because he's not a, he or she is not finished, not right. uh, far enough along to be able to be, uh, you know, uh, or you know, you don't elect yourself to be a guru. There are very the real real gurus, but certainly a tradition can appear. Um, you know what Sharon Salzberg represents uh, is completely non-sectarian, but based in Buddhist uh, tenets, uh, and she translates these things like very few people can in this country. Uh, and you come upon that and and absorb into it absolutely. And and intuition is really what this is all about, because intuition to me is a combination of 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 karma and. Um, you know, taking action, like you're going to take action at the same time, you know, you are open to whatever the mystery may be. And things change, too. The true, eventually, though, I do believe that people will get searched. And, and that search may end in this lifetime where you absolutely know that uh, that we all have that being inside us that is our guide. And sometimes you get to know it physically and sometimes not. Depends what's supposed to happen in this lifetime. Okay, this is too heavy. Okay, what were some of the other questions, okay? Well, I, you know, I'm looking at it I, and I just think it's going to go down roads we've gone down before. So let's just limit the question and answer to that for this thing. because You don't want to? No, because, I, 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 you know, how much to renounce just as much oh, as... Oh, wait, you, I have something to say about that. Yeah, all right. Can I just say one thing? I feel like pontificating today, okay? Careful. All right, well... How much to renounce? In a word. <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in a small paragraph. I get it. Okay, six lines, that's it. Okay, this is like what? I have to be like doing tweets now. Um, no, the only thing I have to say about it is it, it. you don't have to give anything up. It has nothing to do with giving up physical anything. I mean, certainly people have gone to India or gone to South America and, and live very simply and, you know, and not indulge the way we do indulge in the West. But uh, the, the reality is you don't have to give anything up. It's, it has only to do with the mind, absolutely only to do with the mind. And 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 that therein lies the deepest attachments. Maharaji said to us once, you know, uh, yeah, you should be brahmachari. I mean, there's no way on earth, of course, any of us could have been brahmachari means uh, celibate. And he said, yeah, just one person and not a lot. <laughs> that was his definition for us, right? So, um, and he said, it's impossible to be uh, completely celibate. Because that means you are completely pure in your mind, and there's no even even the highest rishis have been enticed by beautiful apsaras or or you know angelic creatures that come and uh, you know draw them down instantly. So if they can't handle it, you know neither can we, or we have no chance. So yeah, that's what I think about. Uh, re there's nothing. Don't re renounce inside, you know, and just uh, awareness and the witness. That's all we can do. Just watch the shit go down, and hopefully, it's going to burn out quicker than not. Well, yeah. Was that as a paragraph? That's good. No, that's good. You know, as the Taoists say, it's not the thoughts that are bad. It's being, not being quick in knowing that they are only thoughts that's bad. 
In other words, we all have thoughts, we all have whatever, lust, desires, but the Taoist philosophy is you will have those, but the question is how, after practice, how quickly can you know you're having them and just let them fade away and not, you know, take you over uh, to your detriment, perhaps, if it's not something that's going to help your, uh, your journey. Uh, I love Taoism. I really do. You know, it just, see, there you go. I'm not a Taoist, but I've read a lot of Taoist stuff. And every time I read Thomas Cleary's works, for instance, which on, is on the website right now on um, mindrollingpodcast.com, I put some things that he'd, uh, some, li- some things he'd listed, some quotes, Taoist quotes from ancient masters. And they always just resound, you know, they're just so resonant right now. Uh, Taoism is so clear. So there you go. I'm not a Taoist, but I love Taoism. Um, you know, it, 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 it's not, I guess we're not talking about, I'm saying renouncing, some people would say are so much further along the path of me, they say well, what you renounce is all these supermarket of, of spiritual paths and come to your senses. But I think what most people mean is should I be renouncing, you know, wanting to make money and wanting to have a family and wanting, you know, to get a, 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 an electric car and, and so on. And I think what Raga, you said is no, that's not going to do anything unless you can find the witness and the witness, you know, and, and let the witness calmly, you know, watch the way you're living your life. And then you, you come to conclusions at different times in your life. There's no question about that. I mean, I know that, you know, 30 years ago, uh, which is what, four and a half, five cellular, entire cellular changes, um, you know, I had different things that I wanted to obsess myself with. So you've got to be easy on yourself and not say, oh, well, I, I should really stay with this. But I'm so suddenly, you know, want to, want to learn about, uh, you know, uh, Mahayana Buddhism or something. Can you tell uh, us about uh, one of your more uh, worldly obsessions from back in the day? Well, oh, oh, you mean, well, you know, I just had to go to the music and see it when it was happening and be at these concerts and clubs and whatever, just to see, I crazed for the music. And it was just very draining ultimately, you know, being that obsessed with music all those years ago. But, you know, um, I think I was obsessed with tall, thin, brunette women. <laughs> there we go. I, no, who, I was, you know, one of whom, you know, and, and, you know, I was actually on the subway yesterday in New York City, and a woman got on who was five foot eleven, Japanese, and was obviously a model on her way to somewhere. Mm. And she sat opposite me, and it was like I suddenly felt like I was under the Bodhi under the Bodhi tree with the, pur- <laughs> the purple temptations coming at me. Because you know, it's not like you get on. You know, you don't suddenly talk to someone on the subway, particularly someone who's a model type person, you'd never do it in other words. But you know, the thoughts were going backwards and forwards because she was dressed in this amazing, amazing lilac green mini dress oh, and geez. with sort of dark, dark, dark burgundy high heels. Wow. I mean, I knew everything about her. <laughs> you know, she was opposite me. So that was just yesterday. That wasn't I'm shocked years. you didn't uh, initiate a conversation there. You well, usually... I really don't like getting arrested. <laughs> You know, it's a sort of little thing, but no, you know, I mean, but yeah, the, the, when I see, like we were out last night, late last night at the Tibet house, actually, but on the way home from Tibet house, there were thousands of people, mainly under 22 on the streets. 
and it was amazing how much stuff was going on of like you know sexual interchange people talking to each other in a certain kind of way outside bars you know um steak bars sports bars always outside because they're smoking a lot you know and just talking looking at each other and i was never quite like that but i was looking at it and i felt like okay i'm 100 years old today <laughs> because it just i just couldn't imagine doing it you know now that just proves that you change not that i was ever a guy on you know on on on, on bleaker street smoking and, and 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 chatting at women but i wasn't but the truth of the matter is that that sexual urge in one's earlier life which is so completely normal and healthy um you know you, you it's hard to fight it you know, it's hard to fight. You think, well, screw Vipassana. <laughs> you know, I, I want to get laid, you know, and, and I do. And it's a real thing. So even if this, this life is an illusion and all Maya, I know this much that, you know, I really need to be with a woman or a man or, you know. And so it obsesses your early life more, I think. But I've met so many people, young people in the last 5, 10, 20 years, whatever, who were dealing with that very much better than we used to. Because <laughs> they go to yoga regularly and they, they do things that, whereby they have more control over their, over their you know, over their... Um, That's senses. full of shit. They don't have... Uh, no, I, I, don't, I think they're cooler than we oh, were. Oh, God, help you. No, you can't make everybody like you. <laughs> oh, me? The model of decorum. Um, you know, all decorum? of... Decorum? All of this makes me think of the story you told me once. Okay, this is really out of school. Okay, his whole face. If you know it's about women, don't do it. Oh, I have to. No, you can't. Because you did something that, you know, talk about being compelled. Was it bad? No, not at all. Don't no. mention names. No names, because I don't know the names. All I know is David one day told me he was walking on a beach in Malibu, right? And the sun, just picture this, the beautiful, gorgeous beach and you know, highfalutin houses and, you know, they're just really beautiful and it's, and, and the sun is setting in the west over the ocean and it's lighting up the sky and he's just taking a walk down the beach, okay, and he gets accosted by a woman who comes out of like a $10 million house <laughs> and accosts him and keeps him kidnapped for a day, okay? This happened... Three days. Three days. This happened. This could only happen to this guy, okay? You could wish for this and want this and talk about, you know, obsession. This is... You know, and Raga, I wasn't thinking about it at all. I mean, I was on the beach early in the morning because later in the day we, had, we were doing a film about the blues, actually, and editing late. We edited late, so in the morning I'd go to the beach and take a two, three-mile walk, and it's so beautiful. At that time, you know, I just was walking and I was kind, kind of... In a, in a blank space, I was so happy. It was so you know how great it can be in California sometimes. Yeah, and she she literally seemed to run out of a house that had a kind of like a conservatory at the front, glass windows, high mm. above, kind of on a cliff with a stairway, a wooden stairway going down mm. to the beach. Oh. And I saw her running Point down doom. the stairway, and she was a vision from you know from some whoa from some late sixties Anne Margaret Elvis movies. <laughs> I mean, she was she was like fantastic. But she did. She came running up to me and she said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm I'm I'm just taking a walk on the beach." Who are you? I said. I gave her my name, and she said, "Do you want to Do you want to come up and have a, have some coffee?" I said, uh, "Yes, yeah, absolutely." And so we went up there, and I, I was like running up the wooden steps, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just 
it was just the greatest thing that ever happened. Oh, God. How but, could this... I mean, unbelievable. But, I mean, the, the, you know, the thing is, was I... You know, did I create that? Well, I, I, I don't think so. No, this is... Uh, talk about, you know, uh, the guru searching you out. Boy, you got searched out there, didn't you? Well, I was shocked... In the guise to, of this... Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, earlier that week I'd been at the uh, Yogananda place in, in Pacific Palisades. You know, there's the great Yogananda place with the Gandhi yeah. uh, Park, and, and it's just a marvelous place. If you're ever in L.A. for any period of time, you have a day, go to the Yogananda place in Pacific Palisades. So I'd spend there. It just really chills you out. It's so serene, so beautiful. And I'd been there maybe the day before. I was very chilled out. And I was, the, and the the beach was so empty. It was like God, you know, just a blue, blue azure sky, and the lapping of the waves, and the soft, clean sand, and no one. And then out of nowhere, temptation. Oh. Okay. <laughs> All right. I don't. We. Have, I've. You know. He told me this, by the way. By the way, I was a single person. Oh. Just to make yeah, that like anybody cares. All My right. Wives. Yeah. All right, moving on. Um, Thank you very and, much for that. You brought it up. I would never have brought that up in a million it years. It just came to me as we were thinking of obsessions, and I, I thought it's because of your, you know, your basic obsession that you it manifested. You made it manifested, your oh. karma and everything. Okay. Um, so um, how about this? Moving beyond homo economicus. Hmm. How do you, how do you, what do you think of that? What does that mean? You mean um, moving beyond being dominated by the capitalism and the economics that govern our lives? Good again. The, the <laughs> man just gets it one after the other. No, this is a test. I have not shared this stuff with him before. Okay. Uh, this is, ex uh, this is a, an article that's talking about um, just the, absolute desolation that we are facing the which he calls challenges uh, climate change resource depletion financial crisis deficient education widespread poverty and food insecurity we have not risen to the occasion to address any of these issues and uh, economies both crisis stricken and thriving are failing to eliminate poverty, improve the provision of public services like education, maintain and allocate collective goods such as fish stocks and rainforests effectively and equitably. At the same time, societies are increasingly fragmented with perceived loneliness and stress-related illness on the rise and existing governance structures are inadequate to improve the situation. And based on what's going on right now, as we speak, folks, the government, of course, is shut down. Uh, so never mind existing governance structures are inadequate. This is beyond inadequate. So we are um, absolutely in the uh, trigger here of, of challenges is probably, you know, uh, uh, not the right word. So a new, he's saying a new approach is needed. So here's where it gets interesting. Um, we, uh, there has to be a fundamental shift in the way human motivation and cognition are understood. The concept of homo economicus, which asserts 
that humans are rational actors who make decisions based on narrow self-interest has dominated political and economic thinking through, since the 70s. Right? Yeah. But yeah. while the pursuit of self-interest may be advantageous in certain contexts, it is not the only or, or even the principal driver of human behavior, and it is not conducive to overcoming today's most pressing global issues. I think that is so super, super said. I mean, it's just so well said. Yes. It, it is time to replace the framework of this concept of this concept called Homo economicus, with a model that reflects humans' capacity for altruism and pro-social behavior. You've been talking about this in past past podcast, specifically guy, about. Sorry. Well, this guy called uh, Charles Eisenstein wrote this book called Sacred Economics. Mm, I and I went to a lecture that he gave, and it was brilliant. And I, I wouldn't even try and, and, and sort of translate Charles's thing, but, but he certainly is approaching that problem. He's saying there's a way of doing this that has love as its center and, and the welfare of as many people as possible rather than the aggregation of massive wealth, you know. Right. I mean, someone wrote on Facebook last week, it was shared by a lot of people. The figure that um, you know that was spent on armies and armaments across the planet in one year is something in the region of I don't know, huge number of trillion dollars, and that they have worked out that to eradicate starvation on the planet, not even poverty, but just so that everybody eats, would cost it was like a hundredth of that. Hmm. And I, I could check these figures, but it, it was a sensible article. Hmm. And I think that what Eisenstein is saying and what others are saying, Jeffrey Sachs for sure, you know, Jeffrey Sachs' book, which is, you know, Bono really got people interested in Jeffrey Sachs. And he wrote this book about world poverty and, and, and how the system is creating the poverty. It's not just a natural order of things. It's just the way things are designed. My hit on it is that capitalism started in the 19th century and it laid the groundwork. I mean, I look at a lot of old movies on Turner Classic Movies and you'd be surprised how many movies made in the... When movies just started, 1930 to 35, were about factories, capitalism, corrupt politicians, uh, the same thing. Mm. So it isn't the 70s. The groundwork was laid by the John D. Rockefellers and, and all those guys in the oil business and then Henry Ford in the automobile business. Now we have an entirely different world, but it's still governed by some of the same sort of, I don't know, they're like really primitive urges, which is to aggregate, 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 keep the system going and just not think about those that are yeah. not surviving well. Through. I mean, they they're just cut a large amount of money from, from, from um, food stamps. That was just done uh, in, in, in the Congress and at least in the House. And, um, you know... I would have thought that would be the last thing you'd cut. Well, you know? they're called Republicans, right? And that's yeah. really what's going on. Oh, yeah. I, that was another uh, thing I wanted to talk to you about. Okay, wait. But I have to tell okay. you, but I wanted to say that, that uh, you know, a model that reflects humans' capacity for altruism and pro-social behavior, you have talked about uh, on a couple of podcasts how you really believe that uh, this new you know, generation, 20s, 30s, at this point, are way more pro-social 
than we were back in in the 70s, uh, late 60s, yeah, 70s. I firmly believe that. So that's uh, related to what he's saying here. That is a good sign. He's saying also, by illuminating opportunities for human cooperation, such as a framework, such a framework would provide a useful foundation for political and economic systems that succeed where existing arrangements have failed. So uh, the illuminating altruism, pro-social behavior, compassion, those things that um, are easily flipped to as being the drivers of of human behavior, not self-interest, separation. And I think that... um, I I agree with you in terms of what I see and people I meet and people I'm working with. That is such a primary driver for them now to focus on on how um, on illuminating opportunities for human cooperation. I think that is absolute key to uh, looking uh, at uh, in, in a hopeful way at solving some of these problems. So uh, this actually was a an article that appeared in a in the Japan Times uh, by a woman named Tanya Singer. So it, it gets very arcane, and I think you, you might have glanced at it and went, what the hell is this about? I, but, I did, no. Send it to me, though, because I'd like to do something on the website about it. I will. Just, like, use some of it, quote some of it for the... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it doesn't always mean revolutionary stuff. That I'm not, you know, the younger people who've taken over gigantic companies that aren't necessarily that old, but they, you know, even the owner of Costco. I mean, you can, it's that it gets down to that. The owner of Costco has said on many occasions, I've forgotten his name. I'm sorry about that, but I have that, and it's not just an ad. He really does believe that if people are happy or working for him, that he'll make more money. So he inquires all the time into what his, what his employees want and need. And a lot of those involve health care. A lot of them involve various forms of wage earning and overtime. A lot of them involve conditions. And that guy, is, I've seen him enough times on the Internet and on television to know that within the system, he's already realized that the betterment of many will actually be economically valid, uh, even within this economic system. You know, it, so... But a lot of people I've noticed are thinking about uh, different systems whereby, you know, home, uh, local grown food, uh, local industry becoming back, cottage industries being perfect for the, uh, the Internet because they can feed into larger Internet platforms like Amazon or whatever, make something happen on a, ma- a micro level economically for themselves and then tune into a global network that's potentially there for them uh, if they're creating something that people really want. I mean, I know it's so ridiculous, but someone I know started a cupcake company in New York. Mm-hmm. But she only had success when she went, you know, when she was able to get it out on the Internet. And that's cupcakes. That's not particularly ecologically interesting or anything. A lot of people are now involved in, in making it clear, you know, Rug, I read this thing about this 17-year-old guy in, in oh, where was he, Australia or England? I don't know who'd come up with a way of collecting all the plastics in the oceans that are killing a lot of the seabirds and the fish, all the pl- massive islands of plastics and, you know, those non-sustainable things that are in the ocean. This kid came up with something, and scientists and e- environmentalists and ecologists 
have actually said this is a marvelous idea. It involves a certain kind of flotation device, which costs almost nothing and could be used across the planet in areas where large amounts of plastics have aggregated in the ocean and are killing the wildlife like mad. And he's come up with this thing, and, and it's not like people are going, oh, he's a kid and he doesn't know. I've got to find it. I'm going to, I'm going to search Yeah, that would be great to know. Because that, people yeah. of note were saying, my God, this, this guy, he may be a teenager, but he's got incredible vision, and he's come up with something that could really change the ecological balance, which is really hurting the oceans, mm. of course. Um, so, yeah, I think that people are homo economicus, you know. It's just like when you watch these cable channels, it's really all about economics and business. You know, I mean, I, I, I read a thing in, in, in the papers this morning about the 15 uh, most wealthy Congress men and women. And quite a few of them had got to Congress by being extremely successful in the car dealership um, thing. A couple of them in the health services thing. So you realize a lot of these senators had enough money and had enough pals with money to actually get into the Senate or into, into the House. Mm -hmm. And they before had made their money by being car dealers. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with maybe a guy that runs a car dealership is a genius and can be president. But the kind of men and women that are making it big now in politics, there's a lot of them. The median income of Congress is eight, $900,000. Yeah. They get 170000 a year a salary. So where are they getting that money from? Well, they came in with the money. The question is, those guys are about business. So while those guys are in charge, this Homo economicus is going to straddle the planet. Yep. I just don't, you know, I just hope that people start to create their own microsystems. Well, what's being there's a suggestion here that um, first of all, humans are often driven to help those in need, even complete strangers, by feelings of empathy and compassion. So yeah. uh, the emerging field of contemplative neuroscience, right, which involves, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is involved there, has begun to produce evidence for plasticity, plasticity of pro-social yeah. preferences and motivation. So they're, they're now having mental, tr short and long-term mental training studies. Um, these training programs uh, aimed at boosting pro-social motivation have led to increased activity in neural networks related to positive emotions and affiliation, as well as reduced stress-relevant hormonal response. So there, you, it, it appears that when mm. you, you know, stimulate these areas through these uh, tr mental training studies that actually enhance and support that part of us that gives a shit about other people and not the part that is totally in self-interest as in all of these people you're discussing just mentioned rather that you know who are in congress and 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 supported by big money and connected to big money to big business and and therefore are very very narrow in their scope and and we can see the results of this right now so um so there seems to be people who are creatively coming up with solutions that are um, real. They can really support a uh, us, us meaning us on the planet, getting out of narrow self-interest, uh, isolationism, and, uh, and the things that, that bring us into conflict on, on micro and macro levels. Um, and, uh, you know, 
I mean, uh, these are the things that we would love to support. And I think we should get a little bit more uh, knowledgeable, you and I, maybe for more podcasts around what, uh, you know, this, this, this stuff that's going on related to uh, contemplative neuroscience and, and what His Holiness the Dalai Lama is doing and what training programs are, are, are there, what is available, what we can, uh, you know, publicize out there. Um, and our friend Dan Goldman, Daniel Goldman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence, has a new book that's coming out shortly around uh, the importance of, of, of focus. And uh, I don't know anything about the book. I just happened to see that it was there, but I think that's something else for us to take a look because he's got a, a great mind you know, for getting at uh, the kinds of things that can help support what we're talking about. Have we gotten... Uh, we have been incredibly uh, off kilter in this podcast wouldn't you i mean off kilter in that we've gotten we've talked about the heaviest concepts we've talked about uh, you know how to how to get a guru we've talked about um, uh, bouncing down a beach in malibu and being accosted by a incredible woman and held hostage for three days we've talked about uh spontaneous orgasms talk about, we, talk about the stockholm syndrome <laughs> i invented that <laughs> now i wasn't being tortured so i should be respectful to those that have been really yeah right i, I, invent, I, I apologize <laughs> don't. all right uh, so i think we've gone far enough with this thing and um uh dave uh Again, let's thank everybody for the support and get out there with that Facebook stuff and show David that, the, yeah. you know, there is some people out there listening who are going to, you know, support Mind Rolling Podcast on Facebook and go to mindrollingpodcast.com because Dave's got some great <laughs> stuff up there. There are people like Shruti and Carol Asher and Alper and, and lots of people actually who do keep looking at it, but I think there are other people who don't look at it and don't like it. I mean, don't they like it, but they don't actually, quote, like it on Facebook. Yeah, like it so on like Facebook. like it, because we're getting up there. But and then share it and tell people to like it. Uh, you know, so it's, yeah. you know, at this point, we're getting to our first anniversary, and we, you know, we want to share more, and we need more support, uh, as usual. So go to the site, hit uh, on, you know, our uh, banners up there for... Uh, audible.com and for amazon and that's it we're not gonna uh, that's it that's yep. all we wrote today dave yep appreciate you see you later man it's great <laughs> <laughs>